is the Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. Hey, it's Julie Pilot with another episode of the Idea Fountain. And Alex Benayan is a great friend, uh, a summiter, and he's got a brand new book called The Third Door. It's about his journey of tracking down some of the most successful people in the world uh, to get advice on how they launch their careers. As part of his journey, he got to interview Maya Angelou. And it dominated into a life-changing moment for me because years ago, while Alex was writing his book, I was going through a bit of a work transition myself. I had grown up working in radio at giant corporations, and when I switched over to the tech side of things and the startup world, I was working for this incredible CEO. Then the startup I was working for was bought. We worked for months creating a new product and launched it, and shortly after, the CEO just left. And all these things the CEO did like dealing with global budgets, finance, legal, facilities, all of a sudden were my job because they didn't replace him. And I didn't know how to do any of it. I was freaking out. I mean, I felt sick to my stomach every single day. I could hardly sleep at night. And one day when I was in the thick of it, Alex came to have lunch with me at work, and he had no idea I was stressing out about all this stuff. We talked about where he was at with his book, and out of nowhere, he said to me, Did I ever play you my, my Angelo interview? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Wait, how did you interview Maya Angelo? Uh, he ended up sending it to me, and a never-heard-before clip from Maya Angelo ended up changing my life. Uh, we talked about it a little bit at my house. So the interview with Maya Angelou, you know, it changed my life just as much as it impacted yours. And just so you guys all know, too, there's a precursor to this story that I know you remember. Remember the first time we ever had breakfast together? It was at Toast. Yes. And you were asking your questions in a way that made me so relaxed. And the way you spoke... We were just having breakfast. But it was like... <laughs> I was interrogating him. <laughs> it was a, like a, you know, a three-hour Julie right, right. conversation, you know? That you look and you think it's been 10 minutes and it's been three hours. And I remember thinking, and I never like had this thought before, that your energy reminded me so much of Maya Angelou, the way she spoke. And of course, I'm like, you say that to all the girls. And I, <laughs> I never said that. And I still, to date, I don't think I've said that to anyone else. Which is why when I was with you, I was like, did I ever play you the interview? Okay. And that's um, what I And so he sent it to me. How long ago did you interview her? How? And like, was she sick at the time? So I interviewed her almost to the date a year before she passed away. Mm. And it felt so special to me to just be able to come home put on my headphones and hear that voice mm. come in so raw and so powerful. And um, I remember specifically, Alex asked a question, which is you know kind of a central storyline to your whole book. Um, he asked her, what advice do you have for young people who are trying to start their career, but they can't get a job without experience? And um, she said, you don't have to be qualified for every job you do because you're smart and you'll learn. You just have to trust yourself. And then she laughed and she said, you know, you've done some amazing things in your life. At one point, you didn't even know how to walk, but you worked hard and you learned. And whatever job this is, you'll learn that too. And it pertained exactly to what I was going through. And after I heard that voice, I never stressed out about it again. I never thought about, am I qualified? What am I going to do? Who's, I just figured it out. And so that was that life-changing moment for me in regards to the book that I'll never forget and why mm. I'm really excited to have you here today. Aww. <laughs> um, how long have you been working on this? This has been a seven-year project. Yeah. 
And when I started, I thought it would be a three-month summer project. Because the original idea was, you know, I was going through this life crisis. I was 18 years old. I was at USC. I was a freshman in college. And not only did I not know what I wanted to do with my life, I had no idea how all the people who I looked up to, how they did it. You know, how did Bill Gates, when he was a sophomore in college, how was he able to sell software out of his dorm room? Or how did Spielberg, when he had no credits to his name, become the youngest studio director in Hollywood history? You know, those are the things they don't really teach you in class. So not only did I not have these answers, I started talking to my friends, you know, whether it's Andre or JoJo, and I was realizing I wasn't the only one staring up at the ceiling going through this crisis. So the idea was, you know, why don't I just go on this mission on behalf of all of us? You know, I thought it'd be super easy. You know, Bill Gates helps kids all the time. I'll just like give him a call, interview him, interview everyone else. And, you know, by the end of summer vacation, I'll have my answer and I can move on with my life. And, you know, seven years later, I'm here saying it's just almost coming to an end. I mean, the thing that blows my mind, too, is how old are you now? 25. You're 25. So this is like a quarter of your life. I mean, yeah. more you've worked on this book. It's unbelievable. And the title, The Third Door, explain what that means. So the premise came to me actually later in the journey. I don't really believe in a whole, you know, there's all these books and TED Talks that say, you know, the one key to success. And I always sort of roll my eyes when I see those headlines. But what I've realized, and, you know, for a music audience, you'll appreciate this. All the interviews I did over the past seven years, whether it was Steve Wozniak or Lady Gaga, although their lives are completely different on the outside, they have a common melody to, the, to their stories, to their narratives. And the melody, to me, it was sort of like how you get into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. You know, there's the first door where 99% of people wait in line hoping to get in. You know, the line curves around the block. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and the celebrities go through. And school and society tell you those are the only two ways in. You know, you either wait your turn or you're born into it. And what I realize and what you know very well is there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way. And every single person I talk to, again, like whether it's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Maya Angelou got her first book deal, they all took the third door. I love it. And I've been lucky enough. I got a chance to read Alex's book and I don't want to give great edits. Well, I mean, I couldn't put it down. I was so passionate. I had so many more questions. I can't wait for everybody else to see it. But I mean, we've got to tell people a little bit true or false. This all really came to life because you went on a game show. True. I mean, talk about that. So going back to when I was 18 and I had this idea you know, the easy part, I thought, was Bill Gates obviously would say yes. So the hard part to me was, and this shows like where my thinking was at the time, that was the easy part. The hard part would be getting, you know, the $300 to fly to Seattle to do the interview because I was, you know, buried in tuition payments. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to like make some quick money. And this is the thing. My parents are Iranian refugees and their biggest dream was me becoming a doctor. So I couldn't go to my parents and ask them to help because they thought I was still pre-med. So I had to find a way to make some quick cash. And two nights before final exams, my freshman year in college, I found tickets to The Price is Right. Now, the thing about The Price is Right is like everyone has seen it, but I'd never really seen a full episode before. But I just thought, what if go on the show and win some money to fund this dream. Now, I remember being in the library that night, you know, supposed to be studying for finals, trying to study, and I couldn't get this, like, really silly thought out of my mind. So I remember sitting at this, like, small wooden table in the corner and taking out my spiral notebook just to get the idea out of my mind. And I wrote best and worst case scenarios. You know, worst case scenarios. Fail finals. You know, lose financial aid get kicked out of pre-med, mom hates me, no, mom kills me, look fat on TV. You know, there was like 20 cons, and the only pro was maybe 
maybe win enough money to fund this stream. And I don't know if you guys have ever felt one of these moments where it feels like there's a rope tied around your gut and it's pulling you in a direction. So that night I did the logical thing and I decided to study, but I didn't study for finals. I said I had to hack the prices right. So I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the entire showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, <laughs> selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the whole book. <laughs> um, amazing. Amazing. Um, you ne by the way, never in my wildest dreams would I ever think this would all lead to this. Yeah. I was... I literally had to not tell anybody in my family what I was doing. I thought I was walking into the biggest mistake of my life. But, you know, sometimes the best decisions happen despite the 20 cons. Right. Sometimes the things that change your life the most are the ones that everyone else thinks are the most ludicrous. And it's when you listen to that whisper that your life changes. Well, it's interesting when you talk about the third door and what happened on The Price is Right, like how do you like think about serendipity or luck or, I mean, how do you rationalize those things in your life? Well, at the time I didn't think of it at all because I wasn't thinking. Yeah. Because I was 18. Now when I look back, I've realized you know, there's a great, you read the Chi Lu chapter. Mm -hmm. So one of the most interesting people in the entire book is, if you guys think of like the book as almost like a Coachella lineup, right? There's the big names at the top and the big letters. And then there's the small one. And it's always, you know, at Coachella, the small ones that blow you away the most because you don't see it coming. And the person in the book who's publicly the least known is a man named Chi Lu. And Chi Lu grew up in a village outside of Shanghai, China, with no running water and no electricity. The village was so poor that people walked around with deformities from malnutrition. You know, 500 school kids, one teacher. But Chi was really smart and worked really hard and by age 27 was making the most money he's ever made in his life. $7 a month. Now, fast forward 20 years later, and he's a president at Microsoft. So one of the most remarkable stories I had never heard of before, and one of the greatest things Chi taught me, because I had to ask him the same thing about luck and serendipity. One of the best things he taught me is that luck is sort of like a bus in the sense that you know, if you miss one bus, but you're standing in the right place, the next one will show up soon enough. But if you don't have the fare in the form of preparation, no matter how many times you wait, you'll never be able to get on. And whether it's the price is right, whether it's, you know, hacking Warren Buffett's shareholders meeting, all these crazy things that happened in this book, at the time I thought, I can't believe this happened. But in hindsight, I realized... It was almost just if you are in the right place with the right preparation and you keep trying, eventually some hit. I remember when you first started telling me about the book and all these moguls you had interviewed, I thought it would just be chapter one, my interview with Bill Gates. Chapter two, my interview with Lady Gaga. Chapter three, Maya. Um, but no, I mean, the way you've written this <laughs> the book. you said Maya was <laughs> The way you've written this book is really incredible because it's really your journey. And, you know, how you track these people down, the interactions you had, your takeaways from it. But what I really loved the most personally was the central role your family mm. played in it. Um, you started talking about your family a little bit, but tell people more and especially uh, talk about your grandma. Mm. So to understand how this book really came to be and it wasn't really until the book was finished that I could really see the whole picture is you have to understand where my family came from. And my grandpa, who's married to the grandma you're referring to, grew up in Iran and was the youngest of five siblings. There was an older boy, 
four girls, and then him. When he was three years old, his father passed away. Now, in Iran at the time, women couldn't work. So, you know, it was up to the men to make ends meet. But thankfully, the older brother was 18 years old and took care of the family. A couple years later, that older brother dies. So now the only man in the family is my grandpa, who's five years old. But his mother had a lot of foresight and wanted him to get an education. So she, you know, sold wedding ring. She sold her wedding ring, sold furniture just to, you know, get food on the table. But by the time my grandpa was eight years old, he realized this wasn't sustainable. So he opened the newspaper one day and saw an advertisement from the Iranian government saying they're looking for paint thinner for a government building. And he just submitted a bid. And because he was a kid, he didn't know the right price of paint thinner, and he underbid so much, he got the bid. <laughs> but, but like a, your own version, another version of the price is right. You know? <laughs> Pretty much. One dollar. <laughs> Except you're dealing with like the Shah's government in like, you know, 1930s Iran. Um, Drew Carey's a lot nicer. Okay. So my, grandpa, so my grandpa, you know, goes and finds paint thinner from, you know, a family friend in the bazaar and gives it to the government and, you know, makes profit for the first time and he couldn't be happier. A couple weeks later, he's in, he's in fourth grade at the time. He's in his geometry class and the police show up. And the police, by the way, the police showing up in your geometry class is a terrifying thing in Iran, especially. And they look at him and they pull him out of class and they say, the paint thinner you sold us is expired. And if you don't get us a new paint thinner, you're going to jail. He's like eight. Or 10. Like, you know, he's like, <laughs> if someone said that to me at 25, I'm shitting myself, you know? Like, he's a kid. But he, so he goes back to that family friend or uncle, whoever that was, who sold him the paint thinner, and he's like, hey, give me good paint thinner. The one you gave me was expired. And he goes, that's your problem for not checking the expiration. So now he had to take the profit he made, and he ended up finding new paint thinner, gave it to the government, um, and he actually still made a tiny enough profit just to make, uh, buy a bag of pistachios. But this sort of set him on a trajectory of being an entrepreneur and, you know, by age 50 was doing quite well for himself and worked in this tall office building in the city's capital. And then the Islamic Revolution happened. And the Revolutionary Guard stormed his office building and went up all the staircases and surrounded his office and at gunpoint, put a, you know, bag over his head and took him to a, what he found out was a death camp where prisoners were killed one by one and he went to sleep hearing gunshots every night. My grandpa managed to survive and come to America as a refugee. He escaped the, the camp and, but he had to go back to where he was at age five, which is with nothing and rebuild it from scratch. Now, all of that, I didn't find, I didn't know that story until like halfway through the journey of writing this book. Wow. And you might be like, how does that make, do you, were you not close with your grandpa? No, I saw my grandpa two to three times a week as a kid growing up. And I knew in family photo albums, there was always like a little gap where he wasn't in the photos. And I would ask my family, where's grandpa in the photos? And they said, to Donishkabude, which in Farsi means he was at the university. Hmm. My parents didn't want to tell me that he was, you know, in this death camp. But all of that is so important to understand why it was my family's biggest wish for me to be a doctor and to not be an entrepreneur. Because what my grandma would tell me as a kid finally made sense once I knew that story. She used to always tell me, if you're an entrepreneur and something happens to us, the government can seize your assets like this. But if you're a doctor, no matter what happens, they can take away your money, they can take away your house, but they can't take away what you know. And if you can save people, you can do that anywhere. But again, I didn't understand that as a kid. So I 
when I was going through my life crisis and I decided I didn't want to be pre-med, I couldn't understand why my, my mom was crying. You know, everyone in America changes their, you know, major in college once or twice. I didn't understand why it was causing my family, you know, to fall to the floor. And only now can I see this was more than a, a choosing a major. This was them trying to save me from the sufferings they went through. And now I look back at, you know, how much of a you know kid I was. I was like, Mom, what's the big deal? And how, you know, unempathetic I was to her struggle and to my grandparents' struggle. Which, when you read the book, as you see, I, as the 18-year-old kid, can't understand why my mom's yelling at the top of her lungs about me switching majors and eventually dropping out of school. So my family plays a really important through line in the book, showing what the immigrant experience is like in America and why education is not some small matter that you just throw your middle finger up and say, you know, just drop out. And, um, and I mean, how do they feel now? What was the biggest turning point in the whole process? Because, like, you know, there's different definitions of success. For some people, getting a book deal would be like, <laughs> oh, he's going to be okay. For others, interviewing Bill Gates would be the moment that um, I guess our son is successful. But for... Your family, I mean, the book's not out yet. <laughs> Can I tell you like, the funniest thing my grandpa, it wasn't funny actually, it was like, it stung. But my grandpa, who went through all this stuff, again, when I was a kid, he was like loving and cozy and cuddly. But once I decided I was going to be an entrepreneur, like I saw the tough side of him. And when I got the book deal, his response was, you know, once you're lucky. Mm. which just, I was like, how could he say that? But again, only now, after knowing what he went through, he was like, yo, once you're lucky. Yeah. And it's true. So, but where are we today in like 2018? My mom is the single biggest supporter by a mile. I cannot say better things about my mom, um, which this journey has really showed me the unconditional I feel unconditional is even an understatement to my mom's love um, because trust me, I tried to break every condition of her love. I did every thing that you're not supposed to do, yet she still found a way to come back and not just come back, but to rally even harder. Um, so I couldn't be more grateful for my mom. Um, my what grandma. did your grandma always say? It was kind of like... The equivalent of over my dead body or what was, what was the thing so, she always says? So when I was dropping out of pre-med and the only reason I was dropping out of pre-med was I sort of, USC gave me an ultimatum, which was you either take chemistry over the summer so you can go to medical school or you're not a pre-med anymore. And I wanted to commit that summer to doing the mission and getting interviews for the book. So I pretty much, they gave me an ultimatum, and when I decided the book over pre-med, my mom, like I said, went hysterical. My grandma said, look, I'll talk to your mom and calm her down. If you swear on my life, you'll get your master's degree. And I was like, okay, okay, like, I'll get my MBA, like, not a big deal, like, I promise. And she goes, don't promise. Begujuna man swear on my life you'll get that master's and you know when you're 18 and you want to get your mom off your back you're like yeah 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 i swear and she goes juna man and i was like okay juna man and that was one of the hardest promises i've ever had to make and eventually break it's a tough balance for i think um young people who are trying to figure out their path because there is such a traditional route that, you know, you're supposed to pick a topic, study something, go to school, and then that's the job you do. Mm -hmm. um, I even have friends that are adults that studied something, they're in their job, but that might not be where they want to be. Um, what advice do you have for finding that balance and uh, breaking out of the traditional mm -hmm. route? Hmm. 
it's hard. And the reason it's hard is if you, okay, if you go back to the third door analogy, right? There's the first door, the second door, and the third door. The reason the first door exists, it's not like some conspiracy by the Illuminati to like, you know, it, the reason it exists is because we're human beings and we want certainty and safety and comfort and predictability and we want to know where our next paycheck's going to be. I, you know, there's a great poem that I've heard, which, you know, compares human beings to horses, how horses trade their freedom for a reliable meal. And many of us in the career, in, in the, you know, corporate world or even the startup world trade so much of our creativity and our freedom for a, a certain amount of certainty. And again, there's no right or wrong at all. It's comfortable. It's comfortable, and sometimes that's right. That's, sometimes that's what you need. But if someone is having that internal angst where you just know that you're leaving a part of yourself off the table, you know you're not giving it, you're not, you know you're not giving life your all. What I've learned is that the hardest part about taking your third door, about finding your calling, about pursuing that calling, isn't taking the leap to do it. That's actually the easy part. The hard part is leaving the line for the first door. Because that's where your friends are. That's where your colleagues are. That's where your parents expect you to be. That's where you're getting paid. And that's the well-lit, clear area on the sidewalk. Although you know where your third door is, maybe it's you know starting a podcast, maybe it's becoming a musician, the path there is unlit, there's mud on the floor, there's some creepy people in the alleyway, and you don't know how long that path is going to be or if you'll even make it. So when I'm talking to young people who are talking about you know finding their calling, the biggest thing I tell them is the courage that you need isn't about doing it because I know you can do it. The courage is looking in the eyes of your parents and your friends and the people who love you and listening to yourself and listening to your voice. That's the hardest part. No, that's awesome. I love it. We, we talked about your family being a through line throughout the entire story. And, um, uh, you know, it's so funny. Like, when you were just saying that, I do have to say, because mm. I even look around now, I feel like I saw light bulbs going off over people's heads. So, I mean, it's fun me knowing different people in the room, seeing what, you know, you just said spark. Um, but we talked a little bit about the relationship with your family being a through line throughout the book. Um, I also want to talk about uh, your relationship with uh, Cal Fussman mm. and Larry King. Tell us about that. So it starts out with a very embarrassing story. So... This is about halfway through the journey of going on the mission for this book. And I was, you know, on my quest to try to track down Bill Gates. And part of that quest was me trying to get to Warren Buffett. And I spent eight months handwriting letters to Warren Buffett. And he would handwrite responses back. <laughs> you know, not a lot. I would send five letters. He would write one sentence. That was sort of the ratio. But he would write back responses every now and then. And after this eight-month journey, I end up going to Omaha with my best friends, hacking a shareholders meeting. And although we do get questions answered, it ends in this like crazy train crash of events. And what ends up happening is I go back to LA from Omaha completely dejected in a huge rut, just can't get myself out of bed because this whole eight months is a lot of time to get rejected every day. And a couple weeks into this rut, a very good friend of mine who had my back was like, hey man, let's go out to lunch. Um, so we go to a grocery store and get sandwiches and we're sitting on the curb, you know, we're 20 years old. And... You know, we're eating our sandwiches. My friend's like, he's trying to spark my, my, you know, he's trying to jumpstart my energy. And he goes, 
come on, man, don't you have any, like, more interviews lined up? And I'm like, nah, man. I'm just, like, angry. I'm like, nah. And I'm, like, biting my sandwich. And he's like, come on, like, can't you just go and try to get some interviews? And I'm just gritting my teeth. And I'm like, do you know what, man? Even if I had interviews, I'd fuck those up, too. Just like I fucked up with Buffett. Like, I'm just, like, angry. And he's like, dude, like, it's not, it's not the end of the world. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Every time I try to go into an interview, it always backfires. And he's like, look, man, like, you're doing a good job. Like, interviewing, it's not a science. It's an art. And I, as he says this, the most unexpected miracle of my entire journey happened. A car pulled up and parked right in front of us in the loading zone. The doors opened, and out walked Larry King. (laughs) And it was so surreal with the timing that I was, like, paralyzed. And my my friend goes, like, dude, go say something. And I just, like, I'm, I'm, I'm frozen, I'm paralyzed. And I just watched Larry King walk right past me into the store's sliding doors. And my friend, his name is Corwin. He's, you know, just like elbowing me. He's like, come on, man. Like, and I think I was just embarrassed in front of my friend. So I, you know, very reluctantly stood up and I just walked into this grocery store looking for Larry King. And I look around the bakery section. He's not there. I like jog over to the produce section. No Larry. And that's when I remembered he parked in the loading zone. So he's leaving like any minute now. So that's when the adrenaline, you know, hits me and I start sprinting through this grocery store down every aisle like, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry. I like sprint down, go like cut a corner, go through the frozen food section. No, Larry. I'm like, all right, he has to be at the checkout counter. No, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry, no, Larry. And that's when I want to kick myself, you know. As if like mana from heaven. He dropped right in front of me, and I didn't say anything. So I walk out of the grocery store, and, you know, staring down at my feet, I'm in the parking lot, and I look up, and 20 feet in front of me is Larry King, and all of my pent-up anger and energy combusted in that moment. And uncontrollably, I started yelling at the top of my lungs, Mr. King! In the whole grocery store parking lot, like shoots their head over. And Larry has had like quadruple bypass surgery. And he's 80 years old. And I'll never forget the look on this, like on his face. I need to show you what it was like. He like goes up like this and very slowly turns around like this. <laughs> like all the wrinkles in his face are sprung back his eyelids are looking like he's seeing like the grim reaper come towards him and at this point now i've dug myself in a hole I, I can't back away now so i just run to him and i'm like mr king mr king my name's alex i'm 19 and i've always wanted to say hi and he goes okay hi and like speeds away like he's just trying to get out of this you know and i'm like oh my god he's like talking to me like so i'm like still following him on the sidewalk and i go i follow him to his car and he like unclicks his car like really fast and he stuffs his groceries into the back and he opens the driver's door and i realize like he's about to leave so i just go wait can I go to breakfast with you? And the look on his face, he looks at me and then looks around at the sidewalk where a small crowd has now gathered and is watching this go down. And I think just out of the peer pressure of the situation, he's like, Okay, 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 okay. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you so much. And he goes into the car and I'm like, wait, Mr. King, what time? And he looks at me and slams the door shut. And I'm like, oh, he must have not heard. Mr. King, what time? 
and he like starts the engine. Now I'm standing in front of the car, wailing my arms in the air, Mr. King, what time? And he looks at me and just mouths like, nine o'clock, and just speeds off. Um, so I show up the next morning with a little bit more time to reflect on what happened. And I'm a bit sheepish in the morning. And I sh- go up to the table and... Larry's with all his old buddies, his Brooklyn friends, and I go, good morning, Mr. King. And he just looks at me and is like, (sighs) so, you know, I don't want to be pushy. So I I take a seat at the table next to him, waiting for him to call me over whenever is good for him. You know, 10 minutes pass, 30 minutes pass, an hour passes, and he finally stands up. And he walks towards me and then walks right past for the exit. And I, I'm like, Mr. Mr. King? And he turns his head back and he's like, what is it? What do you want? And at that point now, I'm just like so depleted. I'm just like, honestly, I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. And this slow smile spreads across his face. And he looks at me as if he's saying, like, why didn't you say that in the first place? And he goes, all right, kid. The biggest mistake young interviewers make. And he goes on to tell me that they look up to the interviewers they admire, whether it's Oprah Winfrey or Barbara Walters or himself. And they, you know, copy those styles. You know, Oprah has all this emotion with her questions. And Barbara Walters plans everything out. And Larry King asks the straightforward questions everyone's dying to know. And they copy those styles. And Larry told me that's the biggest mistake you can make because you're focusing on what the style is, not why the style exists. And why the style exists is that that's what makes the interviewer the most comfortable in her his or her seat. And when you're comfortable in your seat, your guest is comfortable in their seat. And that's what makes for the best interview. And then Larry looks up like at the ceiling as if he's debating something in his mind. And then he looks back at me and he goes, all right, tomorrow morning, 845, see you here. (laughs) And I show up the next morning and he calls me over to the table, pulls up a chair for me. He asks you know, what my book's about. And he's like, all right, I'm in. And then he goes, wait, you actually need to talk to someone else. And he turns to this friend of his who was about like a decade or two younger than everyone else at the table. The guy was in his 50s and he's wearing this sky blue fedora. And he goes, hey, Cal, you got a minute? And, you know, I'm grateful for any help. And Larry, you know, has me and his friend go sit off at a table. And me and this friend of Larry's end up talking for over three hours. And meeting this man, Cal Fussman, changed my life. And he became not only one of my closest friends, he became one of my biggest mentors. And... The book wouldn't exist without him because not only did Cal teach me how to interview, he also taught me how to write. And the, one of the reasons this book took seven years is that four of those years was learning and how to write a narrative. And this wouldn't be possible without Cal and Larry and Corwin jabbing me with his elbow. I love it. Cal, brilliant writer, and has really had an evolution of his own. His podcast is out now, interviewing some of the greatest Big people in questions. The world. Big questions. Big questions. Cal Fussman. It's incredible, including the advertisements. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, people really need to dig in on that. And there's one other relationship I really want to touch on, too. Um, some people in this room know, but there's a lot that don't. How would you explain Summit Series? Hmm. So on the topic of things that change your life, it's hard, you know, between 
like not counting my parents, between Cal and Summit Series, it's a toss. It's hard to say which ones changed my life in a bigger way. Um, so the story is when I was 19, again, on this quest to go track down Bill Gates. And, you know, God bless Bill Gates. If he said yes to my interview easily, none of this would have happened. Right. <laughs> the reason my life changed in such beautiful ways is because I had to really work for it, you know? And a year into the journey, I was on the phone with Bill Gates' chief of staff. And it took a year to get this phone call. And I thought, you know, he's calling me. I'm 95% there. But he gets on the phone and he's pretty much like, look, Alex, we love what you're doing. We love that you're trying to help your generation. But the thing is, you're about 5% there. Um, And he goes on to tell me that, you know, Bill normally doesn't do interviews with just, you know, regular 18-year-olds. You need to go get a publishing deal. You need to go build more momentum. And I never heard the word momentum before. And he eventually hangs up. So I go back to my room and I like my head is in my hands and I'm thinking momentum and I'm just like rocking in my chair like 5%. I'm like trying to calculate if it took a year for 5%, I'll be like indentures when the book is done. And I'm just brainstorming like what I'm going to do. And that's when I remembered like someone told me once about like, you know, Bill Clinton and Richard Branson, like, going to this event on a cruise ship. And I was just like, I don't know, that sounds like momentum. So I literally just Google Bill Clinton, Richard Branson cruise ship. And this article comes up and it says, Summit Series takes the high seas. <laughs> you know, and it's with Blake Mykoski and Gary Vaynerchuk and The Roots as the house band. And it's like, you know, all these people who I've always been reading about on a cruise ship for three days, like, I'm trying to get an hour. Like, these people are there for three days. I'm like, whoever's organizing this must really know, like, how to do it. So I'm, like, looking to read, like, about some big shot CEO, like, you know, someone in their 60s or 70s, like a Les Moonves kind of person putting this together. And it's like, Summit, founded by serial entrepreneur Elliot Bisno, 26 years old. And I, like, double take. Because my cousin's like 26 years old. I didn't think that was possible. And thus sends me on like the greatest rabbit hole of Googling I've ever done in my life. I spend weeks in my dorm room typing in Elliot Bisno on Google and reading every single thing on the internet. The problem is this guy, Elliot, like... There was all these articles about him, but none actually said, like, who he was and what he did. It was sort of like if you were Googling the guy from Catch Me If You Can. Like, you know, a lot of, like, breadcrumbs all over the internet, but no, like, solid, no bio, no photo. Like, almost as if by design. And after these two weeks, I just felt this really deep connection with this guy who I barely knew, but... I don't know why, but I just, and I don't do it often, but I I prayed that night and I, it's like still very crazy to think back on this, but I, I prayed and asked that he would be my mentor. And I took on my journal and I wrote dream mentors on the top and I underlined it. And on the first line I wrote Elliot Bisno. And a couple weeks later, and one of the reasons I'm getting very emotional is, well, I won't give away the, the rest of the story. Wait, what don't I know? <laughs> well, one of, so Elliot ends up not only becoming my mentor and one of my best friends, but he also becomes a brother. And our third brother is, is in queue. So it's, it's it's crazy to think back on that story and to see you, who's like a symbol of where it is now. Um, yeah, emailing Elliot was the single, you know, 
best thing I've, I've ever done in my life. And meeting him not only opened, you know, all these doors in my life, he changed what I believe is possible. And as a mentor, you cannot give a better gift to your mentee than changing what they believe is possible. Because the second you change what someone believes is possible, you change what becomes possible. And nothing is more powerful than that. I love it. So give me a rundown uh, just off the top of your head. Interviews in the book. Um, so there's all industries. So for business, Bill Gates, uh, you know, science, Jane Goodall, Maya Angelou, Larry King, Steve Wozniak, Pitbull, Jessica Alba, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, it's Tim Ferriss, Quincy Jones, one of my favorite ones. I mean, do you consider yourself fearless at this point? I think about the word fearless a lot. And what I've learned is that fearlessness is the absence of fear. And whenever people talk about being fearless, I actually get very nervous because I don't believe fearlessness is the answer because fearlessness is just jumping off a cliff. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. But courage is acknowledging your fear, looking at it in the eyes, and saying, I understand the consequences. I understand what may go wrong, but I'm still going to do this. And taking one thoughtful step at a time. So I love courage. I am terrified of people who are fearless. And what interview do you think had the biggest impact on you personally, if you had to pick one? Like interview, interview, like sit, because yeah. in, the, in the book, there's, you know, sit down interviews in, you know, in Bill Gates's office, 45 minutes, audio recorder. And then there's, you know, people like Elliot who changed my life. So interview, I'm interview. I'm talking about you're on a mission seeking out somebody to yeah. go do an interview. The one that changed my life the most was the least... Ex I didn't go in thinking it would change my life at all. And I was with Quincy Jones. And he just has this way of putting his hand into your heart and his other hand into your brain and just rewiring things and being like, all right, I'm done. And like in a way that's... You don't even know it's happening. And what he did, he did two things for me that literally changed who I am. It's very rare. It's not something you just throw around saying, oh, I met that person and they changed my essence. <laughs> I actually can think of many people where I've only met one time who changed my entire life outlook and essence of who I am. It's, it's a... You know, as much, as much as I love Bill Gates, my essence didn't change there. And what Quincy taught me, the two things he taught me, was number one, you know, I had, I, and I, I interviewed him at the end of the journey. My journey was filled with a lot of embarrassing, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching mistakes. And when I showed up at Quincy's house, my mistakes had such a chokehold on me. I, I know this sounds crazy. I could barely walk. And my friends who were in this room can testify. I was limping walking into his house. Because it physically manifested. That's how much my mistakes were literally holding my nervous system. And crippling me. Because at some point, I would look back on this journey, and although there were great moments, sometimes it felt like a long string of failures. And what Quincy taught me in this unbelievable three-hour conversation in his living room, he taught me that my mistakes are my greatest gift. That only when I cherish my mistakes... Will I learn from them? And only when I cherish my mistakes 
Can I grow from them? And what he did is I walked into his house like an overinflated tire. And that lesson was like the release valve and all the air just rushed out. Um, that's, how, that's how I felt after the Maya Angelou thing. Hmm. Like, you know, I walked <sighs> in one way and then it just hit me. And it's so rare. And for everyone, it's going to be a different. The thing I love about the book is that for everyone is coming in different. Every reader is coming into this book in a different stage. And this book isn't about age. It's about stage. And every interview will talk to someone in a different way. And so that's the first thing Quincy taught me that changed my life. And the second thing wasn't even an explicit lesson. It was almost the theme of the interview. You know, anyone who ever spends time with Quincy Jones knows that you can't have a single topic when you're talking to him. You go from, you know, talking about architecture to nanotechnology to Rio, Rio Carnival to, you know, the pyramids in Egypt in a 30-second time span. You know, and then you multiply that over three hours and it's one of the craziest conversations of your life. And what he taught me with, implicitly is that I had gone on this entire journey looking up. Up at the world's richest man, up at the world's most successful investor, up at the world's most famous director. And he was showing me the value in the riches that come from looking wide to the cultures and to the far corners of the world. And that's where the gold really is. And I walked out of that interview almost as if a new chapter of my life began. And because of Quincy Jones, my greatest joy comes from, you know, spending a week going river rafting or, you know, spending a week hiking the wild coast of Africa or, you know, going to the Great Barrier Reef. I get more joy than that than any answer Warren Buffett could have given me. Um, but if it wasn't for this journey... And it leading me to Quincy Jones, I never would have had that. I um, I know there's a lot of people in this room that love you, and I have. How did that happen? That's really funny. That that was amazing. This podcast is brought to you by Siri. Siri. <laughs> Wants to know what love is. Um, but no, there's a lot of people that love you, a lot of people that have championed you. And, you know, like I said, some people were handpicked because they are at that point in their life where they're figuring out what door to go into. Mm -hmm. um, I want to, you know, open it up for the room to see if there's any questions. But first, I have a cool announcement to make. I want everybody to look under their chairs. <laughs> Not really. That just felt very Oprah. But Alex, Alex does have books. You guys all get a copy of The Third Door. You get to be some of the first to read it. He brought them here tonight. That's so cool to hear. That's so awesome. I love that the people really started looking under the couch. And they're like, I knew it. <laughs> Um, but I mean, yeah, it, 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 does anybody have any questions for Alex about the journey? Oh, I have a comment. Mike <laughs> Posner. Mm. Um, Alex gifted me the book a week ago and that, like you, I couldn't put it down two or three days. I read it and it is, it did what you said. It changed what I thought was possible or mm. at least made things easier that I knew were possible seemed easier. And I have an example of this. Uh, there's an album that I made six or seven years ago on my former record label. And this album got, what we call in the music industry, got shelved. Which means I had no momentum as, as an artist at the time. And my record label decided this isn't really worth our time and money to market this project, so we're just gonna not put it out and call it show. I since got off that label, I've done second record deal, put out another album, but I always had this project that I spent years of my life on mm -hmm. as 
features from Big Sean and Justin Bieber and 2 Chains are all on the album and it's just sitting there on my laptop. And I've had my managers working on getting this thing, the rights to this, clear paying all the, the musicians and the producers and, and the, getting the features clear. We had all of them cleared except for this amazing artist Labyrinth and Justin Bieber. And Justin Bieber said it was fine with him directly. His manager says fine, but they said Def Jam's blocking it. His record label. And with Labyrinth, same thing. And after reading the book, not only did I feel like I can just get this done soon, I, 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 today I feel like I can just do it all today. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I got, I called Labyrinth, he didn't pick up. And then I, I cheat a little bit because I know Elliot too. So I called him and I copied you. I called him for advice. He goes, make fun of him. Say, <laughs> say, say harder to get on the phone than Barack Obama. Oh so I text him and then they call me back. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell him, I'm up to him, look, I got everyone clear to you and Justin Bieber. It's fine with me, Mike. We love you. So that's done. We just got clear with our label too. I said, okay. So wow. Now I have to find out what someone who works for Simon Cowell, because he signed up Simon Cowell. So then I find out, oh, there's this guy, Tyler Brown, I know him. Let's get him on the phone right now. So get him on the phone, tell him what to. It's approved, done. Wow. And <laughs> I still have one kind of call to Paul Rosenberg, who's, who's a friend of mine, who's now CEO of Def Jam. And that's my one call left. He, he's supposed to call me back tonight. But I, I'm gonna get it done. Dude, so good. I, I feel like that story is from the book. I didn't know what to do, but I figured I could do it now. So I called Elliot. He told me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went to Julie's house and we premiered it on Beats One. Yeah. yeah. Dude, that's a great story. That makes me so happy. That's awesome. It just seemed, it just seemed, and there's other projects that it seemed like oh, so much work. But I think what it's given me is a sense of fun. Hmm. Before it seemed heavy. Hmm. I gotta stop yeah. working on my new album. I guess cause I don't want my artist and film with people I shouldn't do that. And this just made it this adventure. Yeah. Dude, that makes me awesome. so happy. That's cool. Uh, does your family see you on the prices, right? I told them. I told them when I won, yeah. Because it seemed like you were really like supposed to be in the academic I sort of told myself that I wasn't going to tell them. And then when I won, I was like, how mad can they be? <laughs> how mad were they? Oh, my God. My, I, I'll, I'll never forget my dad. When he found out I won a sailboat. <laughs> okay, this was the setup. My living room is actually – my parents' living room is a very similar setup to this. I was sitting in that corner – my dad is sitting there, and he was in flip-flops, and he jumped up and started running. My dad doesn't run. Started running and lost his flip-flop. It flew off, and he kept running, and I didn't have the heart to break it to him that I was going to sell the sailboat to fund the book. So for like a week, he's like, we got a boat. We got it wasn't like he got a boat. It was we got a boat. We got it, so uh, my dad was super happy. And he was very supportive when I ended up using it to, to fund the book. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. Because I think oftentimes when we achieve a certain milestone, and it's been one of those things we've been working on for so, so long, our identity is built up in it, um, our whole psycho-emotional state has been completely drenched with this one mission, and you've mm -hmm. arrived, um, and you get to go through that journey of what that feels like. So what's next? What feels next to you? When I started this mission, I would always you know, tell my friends like, yeah, it's, it's a book, but I'm not really an author, I'm just, going on this mission and it has to be in something. So it's in a book. And, you know, as I've been working on this for seven years, 
I think my like, you know, my publishers and my literary agent all assumed that like that would, you know, melt away and I would become like an author author. And although I do love the art of writing and producing a product like a book, it's it's even surprising to me that that same 18-year-old energy of it's not about the book exists. And it, it's not about the book. It's about this mission that I truly believe in, that if the world's most successful people come together for one purpose, not for press, not for publicity, not to promote a product, but really to come together to share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people can do so much more. So in 2018, I'm really grateful that this mission is coming to life in the pages of a book, in an audio book, in an ebook. And then my job is to keep the mission going. And how that's going to play out, yo, I'm, I'm in for the ride along with you guys. I'm going to find out too. What I do know is that even looking around this room, Books aren't the only form of art, you know? So there's other ways to share this mission and to keep it growing and to touch more lives. My ultimate dream is that, you know, in 20 years, your, your kids are, you know, running around and they're like, oh, dad, I, I, got, I got this internship at, at Apple. And you're like, what are you talking about? You're 13. How'd you, how'd you do that? And she goes, oh, dad, I just took the third door. <laughs> That's the dream. That's the dream. I love it. Oh, no. Question. When, so you've been on this journey for seven years. When anybody embarks on any project or mission, there's always the moments which, watching your journey where you feel so desolate, you feel so out, you don't want to keep going, you're not motivated, you're crying. And then what you've done a phenomenal job of, and I've seen this, is like you've had that moment, then you've bounced back, and you've had that moment, and you've come back, and you've gone through this wave, this roller coaster. What's your advice to people when you're in that moment you don't want to work, and you fucking don't care anymore because you've had your heart broken ten times? How do you come back to be where you want to be? That's a really, really good question. Um, my answer today is much different than it would have been a few years ago when I was, you know, in the thick of it. You know, if you asked me a few years ago, I would have been like, you got to push through. You got to, you know, you got to use your hidden reservoir. You got to keep fighting. Um, There's always a way, you know. This year, um, like some of you know, was the hardest year of my life by by a mile. Um, My father passed away and... Not only did he pass away, my, really my entire life, my extended family fell apart along with it. And, you know, I thought getting rejected by Warren Buffett for eight months was hard. There's something about that. It was hard, but it was in the confines of the mission. So I was able to keep fighting. But when something even bigger than your life's work falls apart, you really start to wonder, what, you know, what's, what's the point? So I no longer believe in that advice of, you know, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. There is value to it, but that's no longer how I, it's no longer my outlook. My outlook is two things. When life gets, when you're, you know, on your path, doing your life's work, and you're in those dark moments. I go back to two things. The first thing is a word called matri. And I learned it in a book called When Things Fall Apart by a Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron. And the word matri means loving kindness with yourself or unconditional friendship with yourself. And the idea just feels so right for me, which is how would your best friend treat you in this moment? And it's, it becomes so much easier. You know, when you've had a really, really hard day at work 
and you're just leveled. So many of us, myself included, we're just like hard on ourselves. Like, come on, you can do one more hour of emails. Your inbox, come on. Would your best friend ever tell you to do that? No, he would, you know, put you in a car, order some Postmates, send you home, turn on the TV and say, just rest for tonight. And so many of us don't treat ourselves the way our best friend would treat us. So the first thing would just be be kind to yourself. Because not only does it make the journey better, it's a lot more sustainable. Now the second thing that helps you keep going after you've been able to actually calm down and unwind a little is going back to the purpose of why you're doing what you're doing. Because what I've realized with my own journey is that every time I focused on the grind aspect of it, I go into this whole existential, like, why am I even doing this? You know, why am I, why am I going after, you know, to Warren Buffett after the, you know, 30th no? And the answer to that is when you're focusing on the trees, the answer is it really doesn't make much sense what I'm doing. But the second you zoom out and look at the forest, you remember why you're doing what you're doing, do you go, oh, it's not about Buffett. Oh, it's not about Buffett. It's about the person who's going to be reading about his advice or his wisdom, and it's their life changing that this is about. And it just helps you loosen the grip a little and realize that your shitty week doesn't mean much in five years or in 10 years. And it just helps you go, all right, I'll stay at it. All right. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you. I love you guys.